you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're reading together the first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Amen, and we give thanks to God for his word. Before I was doing what I'm doing at the minute during the week, I was minister of a congregation, of two congregations outside uh, Armagh City. And occasionally, not that often, but Several times a year, the phone would ring in the manse. And of course, one of the most thrilling things in being a minister is the phone ringing in the morning um, because your wife and children play a game of manse bingo. Um, Either someone's dead, someone's doing a jaunty, (laughs) maybe sick, may just be stage fright. Someone's phoning up to complain. Someone's phoning up because you met them and they want to talk about Jesus. It's really hard to complete your bingo card with that one, but it does happen. And then occasionally on a crackly phone line somewhere from somewhere else in the world, someone says, Morning, Reverend McLenahan. We're just doing a wee family genealogy. 
And I'm wondering if you could help us, would you have any information about my great-great-aunt Sarah, who I think had a connection with your church? Now, I am not a very sympathetic person. Um, Those of you here who know me well know that um, compassion lies deep, deep within me. But it's really hard on a minister's to-do list to get your great-great-great-aunt Sarah near the top. There's always something more important than your genealogy. And I can't tell you how many people I fobbed off. (laughs) I'm probably the reason why their family genealogy was never completed. They're probably sitting still in their homes, scratching their heads, wondering if they have to go to the Mormon tabernacle to get the final clue. And you may have had that experience reading Matthew's Gospel. You may have had that experience when you realized tonight, maybe even just a few minutes ago, that tonight's talk is on the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. I mean, our minister, you're thinking to yourself, he had the sense, he read the whole chapter, but he only preached on 18 to 25. Whereas you stopped at verse 17, and you're going to have to tell us what this is about. And it's really interesting that in our Bibles, we turn from Malachi and the 400 years of silence and the blank pages stuck in the middle of your Bible and the opening words of the Gospel of Matthew are the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This genealogy is going to help us understand not just the Gospel of Matthew but the Gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ who Matthew tells us in verse 1 is the son of David, so the king, and the son of Abraham, so the son of the promise. And this is an unusual genealogy. Even those people who first heard it when it was read in their churches would have recognized that there's something very unusual here in this genealogy. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the scholars have had great fun with this. So seven is the number of completion in the Bible. It's the number of fullness. So there are six days of creation. That's two sets of threes. So you've got all the sevens, and that's what Matthew's doing here in his gospel. He's playing games with numbers. Now, whatever the... Three generate the three fourteens mean. I'm not sure we can know precisely what Matthew intends. What we do know is that Matthew is crafting this genealogy. If you were to get out your Bible and look at some of the Old Testament genealogies, you'd quickly realize what your breathless, skeptical Richard Dawkins, ill informed friend would soon tell you is that Matthew's left loads of people out of the genealogy. They're not all sons and sons and sons. There are generations missing. When Matthew crafts his genealogy to 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon and 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, he's not for a minute pretending that this is every generation from Abraham to the Christ. You didn't need to go to synagogue school for very long to know that. Matthew's point here 
is the first thing I want you to take away with you tonight is that God is completely faithful. God is completely faithful. The whole of Matthew's gospel, you'll see in these initial chapters, even over the weekend, the whole of Matthew's gospel is a gospel about the promises of the Old Testament all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his coming, in his kingdom, and his church. And Matthew tells us in his genealogy, right at the beginning of his gospel, is that the God who promises is absolutely faithful. Nothing will stand in the way of the order and the purpose in God's providence. Not Abraham, not David, not a deportation to Babylon, and not the decline of the Davidic kingdom to Jacob. You see, just even looking at the initial people who are mentioned in this genealogy reminds us, doesn't it, what a mess the story of Israel actually was. This is the difficulty, isn't it, of teaching the Old Testament to young people. If you open your Old Testament and simply try and teach the Old Testament as exemplars of how we should live, the problem is there are very few exemplars of how we should live in the Old Testament, and certainly not Abraham, and certainly not David. What do you remember from the story of Abraham? God calls Abraham and he says to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through your descendants, the seed will come who will deliver the world from sin. And what's Abraham's life marked by? It's marked by unbelief. It's marked by compromise. And it's marked by deceit. Think of those times when he went down into Egypt. And what did he say of his wife? She's my sister. Yeah, what a hero you are, Abraham. What a brave hero you are. Abraham's life is marked by that kind of compromise. And when God's timing was not Abraham's timing and wasn't Sarah's timing, what did Abraham and Sarah do? They turned to Hagar and said, through Hagar, through the flesh, through our wisdom and our will, the promise will be fulfilled. The story of Abraham is a very, very unpromising place to look for the fulfillment of God's promises. And likewise, David. Well, David is a hero. He's a man of faith. Also an adulterer. Also a man of blood. A man whose life at times is marked by cowardice. God came to Abraham and he promised him that he would bless the whole world through him. God came to David and he promised him a son who would reign on his throne forever and ever and all the nations of the world would bow down to the son of David. And yet the history of Israel is the history of men and women who turn away from the Lord, who are broken, who are frail, who are compromised, who struggle, who doubt, who transgress boundaries and who reveal the inner twistedness of the human heart. And Matthew says, it was 14 generations from Abraham to David. It was 14 generations from David to the exile. It was 14 generations from the exile to the Christ because God has this. The one who made heaven and earth holds the history of the human race and of his people in his hand. 
And God is utterly faithful to his promises. And the God who promised to Abraham that he would be a great nation and to David that a great king would come from his body, that God is absolutely trustworthy and nothing can frustrate his purposes. I was at a a service recently, not in my congregation, I'll be quick to add, where one of my colleagues preaches, so I just want to get that in. I was at a service recently when the preacher said, there are some people who say God's in control of everything. But if that's true, how, why should we bother praying? No, we need to pray to strengthen God's hand so that God can do the things he wants to do. And I thought to myself, your God's a bit of a pauper, mate. Because my God is the God who made promises to Abraham and the God who made promises to David and the sins of Abraham and his children and the sins of David and his children could not frustrate the faithfulness, the power, and the wisdom of God. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we're moving into choppy cultural waters. You don't need to tell somebody at Union Theological College in Belfast that. If you're not sure what I'm referencing there, you have Google, use it strategically. We're moving into a period of time that our culture even in Northern Ireland, is going to turn and turn away from the Lord and from God's commandments and is rebellious and is spiritually dead. And the great temptation for us as Christians is to think that somehow God's plan, God's purpose, God's will has been frustrated. And the genealogy beginning of Matthew's Gospel says to us, The God who held Abraham and David and Israel and the exiles and the kingdom in his hands holds us, his people, in his hands. And we need to trust him. We need to trust him that he is faithful, that God knows the beginning and he knows the end and his will will be done. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your father who is in heaven. And if that is true of the sparrows, it is true of human history and all families and all peoples. God is utterly faithful to his promise. What else do we learn here in Matthew's genealogy? There are four unusual, almost discordant notes in this genealogy. Genealogies are to do with men. Genealogies are to do with sons and fathers and sons and fathers and sons. And this genealogy is no different. And yet, on four occasions in his genealogy, Matthew mentions four women. He mentions Mary, the fifth, but we're not going to think about her just yet. But the other four he mentions are, did you notice them as you went through? Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, those twins, by Tamar. And then we had verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And then verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
Now, Matthew is not a misogynist. This is not a Me Too moment in the Bible. Mary is about to be introduced to us as the great model of piety, of servanthood, of discipleship and love for the Lord. So Matthew is not anti-women. But these four women are included and they should shock us. Who was Tamar? Well, Tamar is the woman in Genesis who disguises herself as a cult prostitute in order to seduce. And seduce she does. Who is Rahab? Rahab's easy, you know Rahab. She ran a brothel. Who was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile dog. And who was this unnamed woman in verse 6? Matthew almost graciously draws the curtains over here, doesn't he? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's the lovely Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, the Hittite, who, well, it seems pretty clear in the story, she was one of two who tangoed with David. David was seduced. Now, what's the purpose of including these four names in the genealogy? Well, God is faithful and God is merciful. God is faithful, but God is also merciful. By the time we read of these women in the genealogies, they have been transformed from sin to grace God has demonstrated to his people that his sovereignty, his control, his purpose in human history overrules human sinfulness. Even the sort of sin that is most destructive, most scandalous, and most shameful. God is not paralyzed by human sin, and he is not beyond using the outsider, like Ruth, to fulfill his purposes. There's an extraordinary moment in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching. Peter's talking about God's purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he takes this same principle that Matthew talks about it in his genealogy, and he brings it to its most intense example. And he says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Acts 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Were there ever lawless hands more lawless? And were there ever wicked hearts more wicked? 
than the lawless hands and wicked hearts that took the Lamb of God and nailed him to a tree? Was there ever cruelty and wickedness like that? Was ever human sin seen in all its sinfulness and ugliness as rebellion against God, the transgression of God's commandments? And Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is not paralyzed by our sin. That's not to downplay the seriousness of sin. These four women had real sin in their lives. Judah was led into idolatry as well as immorality by Tamar. Ruth was an idolater. Rahab ran a house of ill repute. Bathsheba brought with David destruction on the house of David. These sins were real. They were destructive. They were brutal. And yet God is not paralyzed by them. And the great proof that God is not paralyzed by our sin, even sin that is most twisted and shameful, is in what comes to the genealogy even of David the king. We read the words, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. We are going to spend our entire lives, even those of you who think you're younger than me, we are going to spend our entire lives ministering to people who have been caught up in destructive and twisted and shameful sin. Sin that is an abomination in the eyes of God. Sin that God hates and that God has commanded us all to flee from. We're going to speak with men who have been completely destroyed by their use of pornography, twisted deep inside, we're going to be ministering to women who have been in destructive relationships. We're going to be constantly ministering to a culture that is tearing itself apart, and particularly tearing itself apart in the brokenness of the relationships in which they engage. And the good news of the gospel, the great good news of the gospel, is that our God is greater than human sin. Do you remember how Paul sums up the entire history of the human race in Romans 5? where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We must not be paralyzed by the sin we experience deep inside ourselves and by the sin we see all around us because our God is sovereign and sin does not paralyze our God. He is able to set the captive free. He is able to restore a David. He is able to use a Rahab. He is able to say, there is Ruth who's taken my covenant on her lips and bound herself to me because my grace has triumphed over sin. I don't know how well you know the story of the great Augustine of Hippo. One of the greatest Christian leaders and Christian theologians the world has ever known. 
Augustine wrote the first ever Christian spiritual autobiography called his Confessions. If you haven't read it, leave right now and read it because it will be much better than anything else you're going to hear. He was a very modern man. When he came to Christ, when Christ stepped into his life and claimed Augustine for himself, he was living with one of his lovers. They had a child that was illegitimate. And he was counseled that he had to leave his illegitimate relationship. And he wrote in his autobiography that hearing the gospel and following Jesus Christ left him with a bruised and bloody and lacerated heart. And yet Christ was sufficient for him. And he went on to become the greatest theologian of the grace of the gospel that the church has ever heard. And so Augustine reminds us that God is not paralyzed by our sin. Think of it. There are people today, people maybe that you know, who are not Christians, who are bound up in patterns of sin that are completely destructive. And they feel helpless in the grip of sin. They don't know what's happening to themselves. And our God, who is not paralyzed by sin, our God, who was able to work through Tamar, and our God, who was able to work through Rahab, and our God, who was able to work through Ruth, and our God, who was able to work through Bathsheba, our God is able to step into their lives and by his grace, free them from sin and use them for his glory. Do you believe tonight that there is no one you know, there is no one you know who is beyond the grace of God? When God steps into the lives of those who are destroying themselves with sin, he sets them free because God is merciful. And he is so merciful, he gave his one and only son to bear the sins of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. They are blood-washed sinners set free by the grace of God because God is merciful. God is faithful, God is merciful. One last thing. Is Barry still in Portrush? Is there still a roller coaster? Who's been on it? Quite a lot of you. Who was on it as a little kid when they were just tall enough? Do you remember that little sign at Barry's and you had to be tall enough and you went back year after year and eventually your mum said, no, you're not tall enough yet. And your dad said, no, you are. (laughs) And you, you climbed into the little car with your dad and you were so excited and your mum was kind of freaking out and you just had that feeling of going click, 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 click. And you remember you was going up and up and up and then after about a minute or so of just going up and up and up and up and up, you suddenly thought to yourself, what's going to happen here? And then you went right up the top and then time just stood still and then you thought, and then with everybody else, you scream, no, and down you went. And now you go back and look at Barry's, and you think, what was that all about? 
It's about 20 feet off the ground. <laughs> and you wouldn't go on it. You just, there's nothing would get you to go on it again. This genealogy is a little bit like that roller coaster. From verse 2 until David and Solomon, it's like up, 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 up. And God is keeping his promises and he's building his people. And then we get the great King David. You remember David? And he kills Goliath and the kingdom comes and the kingdom spreads. And then Solomon comes. Solomon in all his glory, all his earthly glory. The Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon and she says, I've heard about you, but nothing could have prepared me for you. You are so wise and your servants, your people are so blessed and this kingdom is so glorious. And Solomon is a man of staggering wealth and earthly glory. Yet because of the sins of David and Solomon, David's adultery, Solomon's idolatry through his many wives. By the time of Solomon, the kingdom has reached its peak. And from verse 6 onwards down to verse 15, the history of the people of Israel is just one rapid decline. There are various low points on the way. Verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, the time of the deportation to Babylon, when the Davidic king is humiliated and blinded and bound and taken off into captivity. The people are taken off and brought out of the land of promise into a place of slavery. The land of promise is ravaged, and yet it goes down, down, down further. And it keeps descending through all these names of people that we know nothing much about. Until verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And Matthew takes us to this poor, poor family in a completely meaningless place. Bethlehem, in the eyes of the world, unimportant, to a cave, probably a cave, behind an inn where a little baby is born, in complete obscurity. We are a long, long way from the glory of Solomon when the son of David, the true son of David, is born. No queen of Sheba came to him, the wise men paid homage to him. And in the obscurity of that cave in Bethlehem, we see the unerring wisdom of God. God is able, Matthew says, to take that which is foolish in the eyes of the world, that which is insignificant in the eyes of the world, that which has no meaning in the eyes of the world. And in that place, of greatest obscurity and humility in the eyes of the world, God who is infinitely and supremely and always wise is working out his purposes. It'd be an interesting game to work out how much we could 
put down on paper about the people listed in this genealogy who are not kind of the famous ones who had Twitter accounts. It's a joke, they didn't have Twitter. I know you millennials, some of you thought, can't remember a time before Twitter, it's okay. And as the genealogy goes on, we know less and less about them. And even the ones who are mentioned in the Bible, when you find them eventually, it's in the Old Testament, that's your big clue, okay. Even when you find them in the Old Testament, there's not necessarily that much information about them. Many of the lives that are mentioned here, in the eyes of the world, they were just meaningless lives. The world didn't honor them. The world didn't glorify them. The world didn't praise them. And yet Matthew says, the God who is absolutely faithful to his promises and the God who is supremely merciful and who delivers his people from their sins is the God who is infinitely wise, who is, he is moving all of history so that his Christ will come. And when his Christ comes, the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an astonishing moment, this decline in the genealogy. It's a decline to nowhere and nobody and apparently no purpose. And yet in the birth of this baby to this young woman, the whole world is born again. And the world does not yet see it, yet the world will see it. The world does not yet understand it, the world will understand it. That in the obscurity of Bethlehem, God, who is infinitely wise, is confounding the wisdom of the world. Some of you may be famous. I'm not going to be around at this weekend long enough to work out who is actually famous. Um, I've been longing for years for an invitation to speak at the castle. <laughs> of the people who run at the castle, I was minister in one of their, his congregation when I was an assistant minister. Another one I trained at Cornhill and at Union College. And another one, I'm actually the minister of the congregation where he grew up and is still a member. <laughs> I was so far from getting an invitation to speak at the castle that I assumed when they phoned me tonight, just after six o'clock, that it was a wind-up. <laughs> I made the person on the phone talk to my wife. I handed the phone to them because I knew that he is more scared of my wife <laughs> than he is of me. God doesn't need us, does he? God is infinitely wise. I was driving down tonight and I was thinking to myself about this point. I'm thinking about the people in my life who have helped me to love Jesus and serve him. And the number of people who in eternity I will say to them, do you know what you did for me? And they probably won't even remember meeting me. Most of them will think what they did for me was absolutely and completely meaningless. The most surprised person I have ever met in my life was my old Sunday school teacher at my ordination to the ministry. And she told me that at my ordination. 
And yet God works through obscurity, doesn't he? Just yesterday I was reading an account from friends who work with international students. And there's a letter had come in from a student from far away who had been studying in England for a few years. And the student had written back to these friends of ours who were Christian friends, thanking them for everything they had done for her while she was a student. All the help they had given her, all the support they had given her. And these people are involved in Christian ministry. They keep records of everything they do. They worked out they had this girl in their house for two and a half hours. She came for lunch one day. And that lunch had such a massive impact on her life that God used the obscurity of a mere lunch, which this couple could not even remember ever having to change the life of somebody from a country far, far away. God doesn't work the way the world works. God doesn't work in all the machinations of nations. God's not particularly bothered about Brexit. He's got that all sorted, okay? Like, we're not all dying next April. It's going to be fine. You might need to wait a few months to have enough money to buy a new iPhone, but it'll all be okay. These are first world problems. God isn't working the way the world works. God's working in quiet ways, in obscurity, through the normal means of grace in his church, through the witness and love and prayers of his people, through acts of kindness every day. God is bringing his kingdom in. He is doing his work because he is infinitely wise and he is able to take the meager, poor little things that we offer him and do amazing things with them. And as Israel descends down, 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 down into obscurity, God says right at the bottom of that obscurity in a cave in Bethlehem, with a couple who didn't even have enough money to offer the standard offering in the temple for the birth of their son. God says, yeah, but this is the one who is the redeemer of the world. Would you be encouraged tonight? I don't know what you do with your lives. You may be in Christian ministry. You may be in a job that you love. You may be like me and be in a job that... um, Are we recording this? Just as well. God is involved in your life if you're a believer. God knows what he's doing with your life. He knows what he's doing with your days. He wants you to honor him and serve him and be faithful to him. It is no excuse for you to say, I'm not important. My life's no big shot. I don't have any influence. I'm not making any difference. God is infinitely wise, and God works to confound the wisdom of the world. God works through the obscurity and the sheer ordinariness of our lives to bring in his kingdom. I think it's true of all of us that the most important things we ever do, we don't know they're important when we're doing them. God does not privilege us with a good behavior report. He doesn't tell us all the influences we've had. He doesn't report to us the lives that he's changed through our witness. He just assures us that he is infinitely wise 
and there is no obscurity, no ordinariness, no humility through which God does not work. That's what Matthew wants you to know and it's what he wants you to believe as he opens this gospel, as he outlines his genealogy. God is completely faithful to his promise. Nothing will frustrate God's promise of grace. God is kind and wise. Sin does not paralyze him. He is the God who even worked through the sin of those who crucified his son to bring redemption and salvation to the world. Far from being paralyzed by our sin, God can take even our pasts and cause grace to abound to his glory. And God is infinitely wise. There is no cave, no obscurity. There is no life too humble that God cannot use them for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, and for your wisdom. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his greatness, for his grace and salvation. Father, we love you. We love you for who you are, and we love you for all that you have done in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would write onto our hearts that you are the faithful one, the merciful one, and the wise one, that we might trust your Son, Jesus Christ, and honor him each day. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.